what triggered this bizarre behavior. Journey into the cold heart of northern darkness with Nordic crimes. That case uh, became like a scene from a horror movie. A new true crime documentary series that chilled the bone. The hunger for killing is increasing in the course of these homicides. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Nordic Crimes is a part of the Acast family. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And my first thought is, how the hell does he know two people in a police lineup? Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. Today is part five of the story of Temujin Kenzu, who, in 1986, known as Fred Freeman, was arrested for the murder of Scott Macklem. Temujin would go to trial and would be found guilty of the crime and for the past almost 37 years, has been trying to clear his name. So Temujin is now facing the trial of his life, a trial that has really been built on little to no evidence, and what would appear to most as an extremely flimsy case, with the prosecution, as we know, claim that Temujin likely used a plane in which to conduct this crime. Temujin said that this entire court process was quite an elaborate show which would start from the moment he was walked into court each day. I'm going to court, and whenever I go to court, they do what's called the perp walk. And this is really another really important part of the case because it's completely illegal, and our courts are doing nothing about it, um, even though there are thousands of cases on this. So a perp walk is where you try to make somebody look bad in front of the jury. What they did with me was they would wrap me up in extra manacles and shackles and then they would put leg manacles around me. And then they would put these armed vehicles patrolling the parking lot. And they put snipers on the roof of the jail building. Oh and then they would have men walking on my, yeah, walking with shotguns and hands on their pistols. But they would wait until the jurors were coming in. So then when the jurors are coming in, they would walk me right up to the jurors area where they park. And I'd be right in front of the jurors. As they're getting out, they go, stand back, ma'am, stand back, stand back. And they'd rack the shotguns. Then they start putting out the word, ready for this? We've heard he's going to try to escape. Now, I'm behind multiple levels of bars, steel mesh screen. I don't have any property to escape with. I've got no visitors. I've got no help. I'm in maximum, maximum, but I'm going to escape somehow. I've been starved. I'm malnourished. I've lost like 35 pounds. I'm sick as a dog. My skin's breaking out because I'm in just darkness and hell. But now I'm going to escape somehow. And they, they just put that out there. Like he's, we heard he's going to escape. And I'm in court going, your honor, Jesus Christ, you really going to allow this to go on? Make him produce the person that said I was trying to escape. It's just a rumor. From who? 
You know, and this is what they would do. And the judge would never hold them accountable. So then I'd complain about the perp walks in front of the jury and the judge would ignore me and say, tell your lawyer. I'm like, my lawyer was standing there watching the whole effing thing, your honor. He's not doing anything about any of this. I'm being tortured in the jail. He's not doing anything. The only thing the judge agreed to do was he said, well, I tell you what, let's, let's make sure he's dressed in regular clothes before you bring him over here. So the only concession the judge made was the jury could see the army of guards and the shackles and the perp walk and the show that we, we used to call it the mad dog show. But I could be wearing a pair of blue jeans instead of jail green pants when I was walked over for the show. I mean, it was disgusting, Jack. It was just yeah. disgusting. Investigative journalist and longtime supporter of Temujin, Bill Proctor. Courtroom theatrics, the show, what some of the witnesses told me, was pretty incredible that it was orchestrated from the very beginning just to make the man that was sitting in front of this jury look like he had supernatural capabilities. And it could be that by the time it was over, the people sitting in that jury for, for the days uh, that, that, all the, that all the show went on, maybe they were convinced that they were uh, watching someone who had special powers, uh, unknown, or were not available to anyone else. Now, a case cannot just be built on theory alone. There needs to be some evidence, whether it be direct or circumstantial. We know for a fact that there was no evidence of the crime scene at all, no physical or forensic evidence to link Temujin to this crime. There was no gunshot residue ever found on any of his clothing and nothing found during hours of illegal searches of his own property. So what did the prosecution have? Well, they had a so-called witness. The only direct evidence in this case, if it could be called that, was a person who made up a story. The morning of the murder, a guy comes forward all on his own, just dying to be the star, saying, I think I saw something. And he said he saw a suspicious car in the parking lot that morning. No crime, just a suspicious car. And he said, and this is important, he said it was a Datsun 280Z or a Mazda RX-7. They look like little sports cars, they're two doors, they have a little slanted back, look like little tiny versions of a Corvette long sloping front. He said the person was um, wearing a hat pulled down all the way down to his eyes and a coat collar all the way up to his chin. So you're talking about like two inches of face visible, peering over a steering wheel. And I could tell he kind of had a scruffy beard and hair sticking out from under the hat over his eyes. Really important, by the way, because I didn't have that. And it says no further information available on the driver. The prosecution's key witness, Renee Gobbin, said that as he was walking from his car with a friend, he heard a shot. A short time later, he would see a 20-ish white male driving a gold-coloured car away from the area of the shooting as it would pass them and exit the lot. He estimated that he saw the face of the driver wearing a cap and a coat for only around about five seconds at most. Sometime later that morning, he would write down the licence plate number of the vehicle and pointed out to police another person and vehicle as a possible suspect, which, when investigated, turned out to be a false lead. This guy, my, then my photos are in the paper, this guy, after being told not to, goes to have himself all his own hypnotised. He walks him through what experts have said is one of the worst hypnosis sessions they've ever seen. And he's coaching him and he's leading the guy. And now he's coming up with license plate numbers and he's changing the description and he's saying a big nose and I have a bigger nose, but my picture's already been out publicly when he's doing this. So these are not revelations. See, what happened was is that hypnotist is a professor there at the college 
And uh, so he, they were hoping to get the full license plate on this vehicle that was seen going through the lot. So the hypnotist took this witness over to his uh, office, for a uh, psychologist office in Port Huron, and hypnotized him, hoping to get the full license plate number. And the professor, hypnotist, uh, he recorded it. So we have a transcript of that recording. But now he changes the car, and this is critical. From a little gold or tan Mazda RX-7 or Datsun 2AZ to a burgundy five-door Ford Escort station wagon, a great big square boxy five-door car. Yeah, which, by the way, he claims is brand new in mint condition, and it's got a brand new license plate with a chrome frame around it, and now he's got a series of plate numbers. 882DHH, 884DSW, and so on. They're just rambling series of numbers. By the time he gets done, the first one has nothing to do with the last one. From what I've learned is that when the hypnotist is used on a, on a criminal case like this, one of the main things a hypnotist can't do is suggest things yeah. to the person that they're interviewing. Yeah. And this is just full of uh, suggestions over and over again. Uh, well, didn't the car look like this? He would say to the, the person he was interviewing. Uh, well, wasn't it this color? And then he'd get to the license plate and he would be suggesting, well, wasn't it this number or wasn't it this letter? And um, well, he's, he's changed everything now. He's changed everything. And Judge Corden ruled that he didn't see any suggestion. And this whole case rested on this this witness that was there in the lot. So I was arrested on the 13th, as we all know. So uh, I'm in jail in Port Huron on the 14th. When an anonymous phone call comes into the Mount Clemens State Police Post, which is not far from the Port Huron area, and the caller refuses to identify himself, but this is what he says. He says, I know the victim, and I know the victim's family, and I know you're looking for this guy, and I know his real name is Fred Freeman, and um, I just saw him, and he's driving down the highway, and he's got his same mustache and beard, but guess what kind of car I'm in, Jack? <laughs> I'm in a 1986 Ford Escort station wagon, a burgundy one. Give me a freaking break. That's the car that Rennie Gobain tried to put me in after the hypnosis. Now, here's why this matters. This idiot doesn't know when he calls in, I'm already in jail. I've been in jail since the night I was going to say, how can you be on the street in a car when you're already in prison? So not only is this on record, the cop that took that call, his name is Detective Sergeant Thomas Ackley of the Michigan State Police. He came and testified for me at my trial about that call. And he said the caller claimed he knew the victim's family, that he went to the college, that he knew the victim, and he tried to put me in the car that Rennie Gobain made up. So, hey, everybody, who do you think made that call? Mm. Rennie Gobain was trying to plant me in his phony murder vehicle, the one that he had completely changed. A few days after Rennie goes through the hypnosis, police would bring him in for a photo identification lineup, which it appears was highly suggestive. Here's private investigator and former Port Huron detective Herb Welser to explain. So, the day of the murder, they get information that from uh, Crystal's sister that, hey, maybe this Fred Freeman might be involved. Sergeant Bounds would have checked at the Poirier Police Department to see if we had ever arrested Fred Freeman before, to see if there was any mugshots on file, 
to show that witness there in the college parking lot. So Sergeant Bounds would have checked our department and found that we had never arrested Fred Freeman before, but that he had been arrested by the Pleasant Ridge Police Department here in, in Michigan. Our department, the Portland Police Department, obtained the mugshot from the Pleasant Ridge Police Department of Fred Freeman. Normally in a photo lineup, five to seven photographs are used, and the photographs used should be all similar. Well, in this case, we found that five photographs were used. There was four photographs of white males and we had a placard that we would put in front of the person when we took their picture, and it says Port Huron Police Department on it. For Fred Freeman's picture, it said Pleasant Ridge Police Department, and then there was a, like 12 different uh, things in Fred Freeman's picture that were different than the Port Huron Police Department. For instance, there was a side view of Fred Freeman that was completely different than the other four photographs. Uh, there's like 12 different things that were different in addition to the main thing that said Pleasant Ridge Police and the other four said Port Huron Police. So essentially it stood out. Oh, definitely. And if you check on this case several years ago, that came up uh, here in St. Clair County, hearing on that as far as the photographs. And they brought in this woman who I guess is the, the leading expert in the United States for identification procedure. And she testified it was the worst case that she's ever seen in all of her years uh, looking at lineups such as this. They then move to a live lineup featuring the only two other potential witnesses. So, and you know, they always try to say, you know, there's three witnesses. No, there aren't. Kathy Ballard, the other person in the parking lot, never identified me. The other so-called witness was never in the lot. That's a guy named Richard Kruger. He was in a different lot. He saw somebody he thought was suspicious. And guess what? He didn't identify me from photographs. He didn't identify me from person. So they take me to a lineup. And this is also really important for listeners. And I hope you'll understand how this works. When you watch TV, you see the big lineup stage and the big glass window. Number forward, you step forward and they click a little microphone button. That's not what they did at Port Huron in 1986. And Port Huron in 1986, you stood on a, on a little wooden box with a black cloth screen in front of your face and a bright light. You can see right through the screen and you can hear everything they're saying and doing. So it's not the police thing you see in the movies. So I see this guy walk up and he's saying, oh, it's so hot and the lights in here and things like that. He goes, he goes, but if I had to say anybody and he picks out number six, James Loxton, a man who looks nothing like me, long, black, greasy hair, kind of Native American looking guy, very skinny, little uh, kind of weaselly pencil thin mustache, long criminal history. Another person comes up, picks out James Loxton, same guy who looks nothing like me. But Rennie Gobain, the hypnotized witness, and my photo's already been in the paper, he walks up and he says, well, I know him and I know him, and I know the guy you're looking for has brown hair, so I'll say him. And my first thought is, how the hell does he know two people in a police lineup? Well, turns out they were, they were police officers that were in my lineup.
And the other guys they pulled out of the bull tank looked nothing like me. And they had told Gobain what they wanted, and my picture had already been in the newspapers. So Gobain knew what he was looking for. The other issue the prosecution faced with their star witness was his description of a man with a long beard and hair that would come down under a hat. This did not match Timogen's appearance at that time. He says his hair just wasn't long, and certainly not long enough that it would protrude down from a hat. So, what did they do? They tried to force me to grow my hair and beard to look like the suspect. So Robert Cleland wrote a no-shaving, no-haircut order. I have his actual written order if anybody wants to see it. Don't let him shave. Don't let him uh, cut his hair. And of course, I was denied access to morning shaves and, and haircut services. So my hair grew out long enough that it would have been able to stick out under a hat. And I had a big beard. Well, what Robert Cleland didn't know was my beard grows in red. And I mean, bright red. This idiot didn't know this. So now he sees me after like a month or two. And I've got this bright red beard with blonde flecks all through it. And he's going ballistic. He's dying his effing beard. What the F is going on in that jail? Because their suspect supposedly had a very black, dark beard. And I've got this bright red and blonde beard. But again, this is how corrupt these people are, just for everyone listening, that they literally tried to make me look like the suspect because they want to take me to another lineup and have people look at me when I look like the phony suspect, which, by the way, was the fake suspect that Rennie Gobain created all on his own. Now, that man to this day, and and I want everyone to know, there's been a $20,000 offer for him to take a polygraph. He will not take a polygraph for $20,000 or $20,000 of the charity of his choice. He will not take a polygraph about his honesty in this case. It's important to point out that no car was ever linked to Temujin in any way. This supposed vehicle was never located, and the plate numbers that René would come up with never matched any vehicle that he described from the scene that day. And this whole case rested on this this witness that was there in the lot. Yeah. And if Judge Corden would have thrown out that witness's testimony based on this hypnosis, there wouldn't have been a case. In fact, I don't know if you've seen the Poor Aaron Times Herald article where Elwood Brown, Elwood Brown was involved in this case as a prosecutor, an assistant prosecutor. Then he became the head prosecutor in St. Clair County after Bob Cleland was appointed a federal judge. And the Times Herald that interviewed Elwood Brown about a, uh, a hearing on the hypnosis part of this case, like four years after the trial, he said himself, and it's quoted in the Times Herald, that Elwood Brown said, without the testimony of that witness, we wouldn't have had any case at all. That's their entire case, this guy. That guy, the, the phony inmate snitch, and Rennie Gobain trying to put me in a car. By the way, he didn't say he saw any crime. He just said he saw me driving in the parking lot. Oh, yes, everybody. This case also features the classic jailhouse snitch. When we come back. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. 
For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we've discussed jailhouse snitches before. It's something that came up in our story of David Bomber and something I spoke of at length in regards to just how they have been linked to multiple wrongful convictions. Well, again, we find ourselves faced with yet another good Samaritan in prison who wants to help the fight for justice. So now one day they get me and they put me into a room with this huge black guy, big light-skinned black guy. You can tell this guy's a convict. He's big, he's muscular, he's tattooed. I'm down to like 135 pounds. I'm sick as a dog. Martial arts guy or not, I am not in fighting shape. The first thing I think is this is a setup. They've done everything except have an inmate or inmates jump on me. Here's this guy. So right away I'm on the defensive and they put me in the cell room with this guy. They never, ever do this. Fortunately, there was another black individual in the room, kind of quiet, sitting there. But my first thought is these two guys are supposed to jump on me and beat me. Instead, the big guy starts trying to pump me for information about my case. Now I'm on the defensive and I'm really waiting for like a sucker punch to come or something, you know, and uh, I'm kind of like watching him wary, you know, ready to try to jump into a sidekick or something, figuring out how I'm going to take down this big guy. And he goes, hey, man, uh, you know, I think you're innocent and I don't think you did it. And and the guys in the jail are saying you're being set up. And I heard the guards say you're being framed. And I'm like, I am being framed. And um, he goes, yeah, man, you know, like nobody thinks you did this, bro. And, he, and I'm still waiting for the sucker punch. Like it's a trick. We call that the Virginia or the soft con where you set somebody up. And um, the other guy kind of chimes in and goes, man, I heard the guys in the drunk tank saying the police are admitting you're innocent. And I said, I am innocent. He's like, yeah, they're like, you got 20 people that saw you up north. I'm like, I do. And there's more they haven't even called. And um, I had a bunch of other alibi witnesses they didn't call. And so um, I kind of relax a bit. And he's going on and on about how I'm being set up. And I realize there's probably not any violence coming. And then after about 10, 15 minutes of this, they come back and they put us uh, in cuffs. And then those two guys are walked over. Normally, I go back into the giant pile of shackles and I'm walked over to the courthouse. I don't think too much of it. But I do tell my lawyer, hey, man, they got me in a room with these two guys. They're talking about the case. and They're saying they're, they're hearing the guards say I'm innocent. And I'm thinking my lawyer might follow up on this, but he's not. Okay. What I didn't know was the whole thing was a setup. The good thing is the second black male was not part of the setup. So the person who was part of the entire setup's name was Philip Joplin. And this whole thing was planned out. He was told to write a letter saying that I snitched after they told him what to say in the letter. 
So they sat him down and they said, okay, we want you to talk about lesbians and we want you to talk about the victim screening. There was no evidence the victim screened, by the way, but they wanted him to say that. And, they, and make sure you say his girlfriend's a lesbian. And, and this is the 80s, so heaven forbid a woman is a lesbian in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. You don't do that. And it's, I think it was like, well, in case Shelly gets in the stand, my all-white farm jury from the sticks is going to go, oh, lesbian Satanism, oh my God, pit bulls, weird green drinks, ninjas, Rambo, mind control. It's just too much. He must have done it. And that was their entire goal, was just to vilify me. And so they give this guy all these things to say. And then per the instructions, he writes this phony letter saying, I confessed. Now it's, we got a surprise witness, your honor. Um, he confessed to somebody. Now here's the most important part, perhaps. The judge, out of nowhere, all on his own, turns to the jury and says, I want the jury to know this man's received no favors or inducements for this testimony. Now, why would a judge do that? Yeah. How the hell would the judge know that? Temujin says this jailhouse snitch would be rewarded handsomely for his testimony. And like so many, however... He would recant later on. Well, it took us years, but eventually that man agreed to speak. And by 1990, he was admitting the entire thing was a lie and that he felt bad for setting up a person that he knew was innocent. In fact, from the documentary made by Bill Proctor on this case, here is what the snitch had to say. Did Mr. Freeman ever say that to you? No. Did he ever say something about the victim screaming when he shot him? No. Did he ever say he used a shotgun to kill somebody? No. So why did you write in your letter that this man was a confessed murderer? To see if it would get me out. This show in the courtroom would continue as they placed Crystal Merrill on the stand. Remember, she's the lady who started it all in the beginning, the girlfriend of Scott Macklem. And she would spend no less than two and a half days on the stand testifying to the jury, with most saying they couldn't quite believe what they were hearing. Bill Proctor again. They had this woman talking on the stand for two and a half days about stuff so crazy, it can't even be found in some of the ninja movies back in the day. But I'm understood. I'm understanding that because she worked in a in a movie shop, once she met Fred, she might have gone to watch two or three or four different ninja movies. And of course, ninja movies have all kinds of magic in them, and that's what she was articulating on the stand. All those people in the jury had probably never seen a, a karate movie at all. But they heard it from this upset woman who fully believed what she claimed she'd been told by Fred Freeman about his ability to jump from trees and, and, uh, and, and all kinds of magic ways to kill people and surveillance, all of this stuff. Okay, so th- that was a part of what, what amounts to some brainwashing that literally came from the stand from a young woman who may appear to be credible but wasn't challenged very much at all by the defense attorney who unfortunately had a cocaine problem at the time of the trial. Now, what does every good ninja assassin need? Weapons, of course. Well, the murder weapon that would kill Scott Macklem was never found. As we know, an extensive search of Temujin's home and vehicle also turns up nothing at all. But that doesn't seem to stop the prosecution laying out a table full of weapons in the courtroom. They, they did things like put guns on the table on the prosecution side, uh, all lined up, and never mentioned who owned them or where the guns came from or how they were tied to the case. But it was a part of the show. 
The final blow would come at the end of the trial when Temujin was denied the opportunity to get up on the stand and testify for himself. A decision his attorney would claim was one they made together. No, I was not allowed to testify. They would not let me understand. So what my lawyer did was he tells the court, and again, this is in the transcript. Um, well, we're not sure if we're going to have him testify. And I turned to him like, have you lost your F in mind? Of course I'm going to testify. I couldn't wait to tell my side of this. Mm. And um, he goes, oh, no, that's just, that's, that's just normal. You have to do that. Otherwise, you have to give notice. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. I don't, I don't know the law. Okay, whatever. But I, but I know I'm getting on the stand. When, when it comes time for me to get on the stand, you know, you always put the, the defendant on last unless you do rebuttal, my lawyer stands up and says, defense rests. I'm like, whoa, whoa, defense what? Defense rests. I didn't even get a chance to tell him that I didn't confess to this inmate. I'm like, oh, hell no. I was furious, Jack. Like, I, I put up with it all, you know? I put up with the abuses, the torture, the jail. It took everything I had not to just, I mean, throttle him in front of that jury in that courtroom. And I was screaming bloody murder in the hallway, and they heard me, too. And I was yelling to the judge, Your Honor, I want to testify. And he was like, oh, son, you have to do that through your lawyer. I can't talk to you. And I was like, this is insane. That was it. I mean, me and him were done. So I threatened to file a bar grievance. I threatened to sue him, a whole bunch of other things. And for both, for not calling Michelle or me, he rested without calling either of us. Here's the really sick part of this whole thing. I filed a bar grievance about this in 1988. When I was in prison, I was just starting to learn about the law. I filed a complaint and I made it very clear that he wouldn't let me testify. And he called that a lie. Uh, the federal judge ruled in 2010 that I was absolutely telling the truth, that I immediately reported this to the Bar Association, and that, in fact, my lawyer did not let me testify. And that was one of the things that I won my appeal on. The Sixth Circuit, that same dirty judge, David W. McKeague, friend of Robert Cleland, came back and said, ah, too bad, you're late. So they knew I wasn't allowed to testify. The, the federal judge in my case admitted it, and the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said, so what, you were late. I mean, corruption seems to be rife through this entire case. Even in the bench itself, Judge Corden, from what was determined later to be, uh, got help from the prosecutor, Robert Cleveland himself, in some sort of a traffic situation. I'm not going to try to articulate it because I've never specifically read it, but I think we had a judge that was beholding beholding to the prosecutor, and with that in mind, uh, might have been holding back on what should have been his charge which is to maintain fairness in the overall presentations of the jury. So, I mean, from, from every single element of what was supposed to be here, that is the police who were supposed to investigate and fairly present, the prosecutor who was supposed to put on essentially um, a, a proven elements of a case um, and then ended up playing games with the smoke and mirrors flights that never took place and were never proven, um, and uh, who put people on the stand to uh, make statements that literally came from bad movie scripts, and then to push back on and challenge and essentially uh, put in the minds of the a jury questions about nine individuals who were not related to Fred Freeman. Some of them weren't even his friends, but they just knew that, that never mind what personality uh, flaws he might have had, or never mind what what might have uh, made them kind of neutral on the guy. They certainly knew where he was because they were standing with him at Escanaba within a matter of hours uh, after uh, the murder. So that's just the way the whole thing was played out. And yes, there's reason for people to continue to shake their heads even to this day.
So other than the glaring issues that are facing this case, the biggest question I believe on everyone's mind is how? How does a jury find Temujin Kenzu guilty of this crime? Well, I did a lot of ringing around with some information that I was given. Much like my attempts to track down Crystal Merrill, I was drawing blank. Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. At the tone, please record After blank. We're sorry, you have reached a number that has been disconnected or is no longer in service. After blank. Hello? Yeah, hi. Uh, my name's Jack Lawrence. I'm a, a journalist in Australia. I'm working on a story about uh, the Fred Freeman case. Um, no, thank you. Have a good day. Okay, no problem. Fair enough. After blank. Please leave your message. Yeah, hi. My name's Jack Lawrence. I'm, I'm trying to track down... Uh, I'm a journalist. I'm working on the story of uh, Fred Freeman, I believe. Until. Yeah, hello. Hello, is that... Yep. Uh, look, obviously, Thursday, I want to just say thank you very much indeed for agreeing to chat with me. I very much do appreciate it. No problem. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mash Pumpkin production. Produced, hosted and created by Jack Lawrence. Editing and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans. This show is part of the ACAST Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.